Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Guardian. With one week to go until the local elections, the Prime Minister is probably wishing he hadn't poked the bear. I'm Jessica Elgott, Deputy Political Editor of The Guardian, and this is Politics Weekly. What do we get from this Prime Minister and this Conservative government? Dodgy contracts, jobs for their mates and cash for access. And who's at the heart of it? The Prime Minister, Major Sleaze, sitting there. Following a nuclear blog post from Boris Johnson's former top adviser Dominic Cummings, the PM is now facing multiple claims of impropriety. So where to start? First, there's the home decor issue. Days after Cummings claimed that there were plans to have donors secretly pay for renovations, the Electoral Commission announced that it was launching a formal investigation into how Boris Johnson funded the work at his Downing Street flat. Keir Starmer tried to get a direct answer from Johnson at Prime Minister's Questions earlier about who initially paid for the refurbishments, but Johnson just responded over and over that the main thing to know is that he eventually footed the bill. Uh, He has half an hour every week uh, to put serious and sensible questions to me about the state of the pandemic, about the vaccine rollout, about what we're doing to support our our NHS, about what we're doing to fight crime, about what we're doing to bounce back from this uh, pandemic, about the economic recovery, about jobs for the people of this country. And he goes on and on, Mr Speaker, about wallpaper when, as I've told him umpteen times now, I paid for it. Where the money came from remains unclear. Answer the question. That's what the public scream at their televisions. Every PMQ answer the question. The Prime Minister hasn't answered the question. He knows he hasn't answered the question. He never answers the question. Then there's that alleged comment made by the Prime Minister when, according to sources, he said he'd rather let the bodies pile up high in their thousands than locking the country down again. Johnson and senior ministers have emphatically denied that he said it. But given the number of accusations flying at the PM these days, it's hard to know whether to believe it, which is quite an indictment in itself. And finally, who is the chatty rat? So where will this end? And with the local elections looming, will any of it really matter? Plus, with Europe desperate to welcome travellers this summer, are holidays abroad on the cards? That's all in this week's Politics Weekly. So first, for a roundup in the latest in the so-called Tory sleaze, I'm joined by Guardian columnists Zoe Williams and Sonia Soda. It's lovely to have you both on. Um, 
I guess maybe we should rewind a bit and start with this pretty nuclear blog post of Dominic Cummings last week. And apparently, and they, number 10 haven't denied this, Johnson went to some newspaper editors to tell them that, that Cummings was responsible for a whole load of damaging leaks, including the leak of the autumn lockdown and, you know, ones about his flat, including texts between him and, and the Saudi leader, Mohammed bin Salman. He was obviously the one who hired Cummings. Even David Cameron called Cummings a career psychopath. I mean, Zoe, why do you think he, he hired him in the first place? And why did why did Dominic Cummings take the job when he clearly has quite a lot of disdain for the prime minister? That's a, such an interesting and huge question. I mean, certainly they, he hired him in the first place because he knows how to win, right? Dominic Cummings has not let anybody down if you were going to him for winning purposes. He won Brexit. He won the election for Boris Johnson. So he has something. And I think the psychopathic side of him and the winning side of him are the same side of him. I think he has a sort of, you know, everybody always uses this language about him. He's like an arsonist. He's the kind of guy who'd die mending his own boiler because the plumber's an idiot. They use this really kind of aerated, explosive language because he just doesn't care. You know, he will destroy everything. If he does bring Boris Johnson down, that will be the third Conservative Prime Minister he's brought down. So there's something very, very destructive in his energy. But it is, if you want things destroyed, you know, a Labour stronghold in the Red Wall, for instance, or a relationship with the EU, if your plan for your own domination is to destroy something very major that other people hold dear, then Dominic Cummings is your man. He doesn't seem to have any restraint. So I think that's why Johnson employed him. You know, why they've fallen out, a lot of people are kind of saying, well, isn't it a coincidence? Dominic Cummings has never been able to produce a blog post at less than 10,000 words. And suddenly he finds that he can express himself quite well and quite persuasively in 800 words. So maybe there's some kind of journalist helping him out. The inference there being that Michael Gove is sort of in the background, having been stepped down and very much sidelined for reasons that haven't yet come out. Gove and Cummings are in cahoots in order to to, to kind of take the whole show off the road. I think it's just as likely that Dominic Cummings was always perfectly capable of expressing himself in 800 words, and he just doesn't have the restraint. If you think about the way he talked about people he'd worked with before, my favourite line was always about David Davis when he said he was lazy as a toad, thick as mince. I mean, you know, he absolutely goes for the jugular, and there is no, once they're at odds with one another, there is nowhere Cummings won't go. So, you know, the mystery is why why Boris Johnson didn't anticipate that and try and head it off rather than taking the fight to Cummings. But that's probably to do with his arrogance and failure to plan ahead. Sonia, Cummings is due to give evidence to MPs about the government's COVID response on the 26th of May. Do you think there's a lot more that he'll want to say about his beliefs, where the government got things wrong, he also seems to think from, you know, you can kind of read between the lines of tweets that he's retweeting or liking, that scientists got things wrong in the run up to the first lockdown, including on mask wearing, which they didn't necessarily immediately endorse, and on border closures. Do you think he's, he's prepared to take a lot of people down with him, not just the Prime Minister, perhaps? 
Yeah, I mean, I think he's prepared to do whatever it takes so that he's cast in a good light. And I think that's the thing about this. It's really extraordinary. I think there will be much more to come in his uh, testimony to the Select Committee. I think Number 10 are kind of really quite nervous about it, and rightly so. You know, it is extraordinary that we've got a former advisor who basically doesn't really care that much about the government he's just left. He feels a lot of personal animosity, it seems, to the PM. You know, he's not ideologically a conservative in the same way that people like sort of Boris Johnson or Michael Gove are. So I think he will say what he wants. But I think the thing that we've got to remember is, you know, I'm no fan of Boris Johnson at all. I think he's a man completely lacking in integrity. But let's face it, so is Dominic Cummings. Look at the campaign they ran together for Brexit, which essentially completely misled voters about the implications of staying in the EU. I mean, they've just not got a shred of integrity between them. So I think he will basically want to cast himself in the best light possible. So that means that we can't really trust what he says either. And we shouldn't take it as read just because we are in this extraordinary circumstance. And I think the other thing that I would just chip in, coming back to sort of why Boris Johnson kind of took this fight to Cummings, as it were, I just I just think it reinforces the fact that Boris Johnson is a man of incredibly poor judgment. And I think we've seen that all throughout the last year in the government's handling of the pandemic. He's incredibly indecisive. He gets swung around by his cabinet. You know, he's not a man of principle. He doesn't know what he thinks. And I think It's just yet another piece of evidence. He is not a man of sound judgment. He's not somebody wise. He's not the kind of person we need leading the country during a global pandemic. And obviously, Dominic Cummings himself clearly feels like that he, yeah, that points on you that you're making is the point of where there was there was the breakdown of relationships where, you know, Cummings clearly felt that the Prime Minister was holding out against something that was inevitable and making it worse in the lead up to the November lockdown. And and obviously, he also found himself at odds with the Prime Minister's fiancé, who we'll come to a little bit later. But um, I want to talk about the kind of two fronts that Number 10 are are fighting on. And there are obviously loads of other different spiralling stories, including Greensill, including the European Super League including the text with Mohammed bin Salman. There are so many things that have come out over the past you know, week or so. But I want to talk particularly, first of all, about whether you think the more damaging thing for the prime minister is these words that he apparently said about, you know, he would rather see the bodies pile up than impose a third lockdown, something that number 10, we should say, really strongly deny the prime minister denies on the record they're less strongly denying the fact that he said something along the lines of he'd rather let it rip than force people to close their businesses again you know they say that that's a distortion but they don't 100 percent deny that he ever said anything along those lines and you can imagine can't you i wonder whether you think the public can understand zoe that in a very 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 high stress environment uh, and we we probably know this from newsrooms that people say things that are not appropriate at times of high stress. There's black humour in lots of I'm trying to be generous here, but there's black humour and difficult language used in lots of workplaces where there is high stress. And it, it might it might be part of that. Do you think the public will understand that? The problem with this is you can really imagine Boris Johnson saying it. It's very consonant with the way he writes. It's very consonant with the way he talks. It has that kind of slightly arcane, weird word order, let the bodies pile high in their thousands. You know, it sounds exactly like the man you know. So the idea that anybody's in any doubt, I think, is kind of for the birds, even though number 10 has denied it. 
it's interesting that the BBC has tried to give it a slightly different angle. You know, he wasn't saying, I don't care if the bodies pile high in their thousands. He was saying the bodies may pile high in their thousands if this happens. And that suggests to me that there's some back channel going on where they know they can't deny it forever and they're just trying to gloss it in a different way. But it's quite a strong thing, isn't it, for them to for him to lie down the camera, for Michael Gove to lie in the Commons. That's that's a big deal, isn't it? I think it would have been a big deal from a different Prime Minister, but I don't think anybody you see, I don't think anybody would be that surprised if it transpired that he was lying straight down a camera. So all those kind of norms we previously had, you know, a senior politician will go this far down the road of dishonesty, but not this far. I think those are sort of 2019's politics. I think in the person of Boris Johnson, we accepted that there wasn't a kind of truth quotient in any normal way. But I think the more interesting thing is what you were saying about isn't this just the language people use in high stress environments won't people just understand that in private you say extraordinary things and i think that is not true either because you know people have a really high tolerance for politicians telling bald truths to one another which they wouldn't be able to say in a press conference or on news night they have a high tolerance for kind of grim adult honesty And if it had sounded like that, then I think it would have just disappeared, the scandal. But what it sounds like instead is somebody who doesn't really care in a normal way. You know, is it somebody who doesn't really care for the kind of future of his fellow citizens? That was sort of always what lay beneath his lovable rogue exterior was just the plain rogue, the person who just doesn't care about anybody. And I think it kind of speaks to that thing that even the people who liked Boris Johnson knew about Boris Johnson in such a kind of believable way that I don't think it's going to go away. I mean, personally, I think the more damaging thing will be related to Carrie, which I know we're going to come to in a minute, but I don't think he's going to be able to wriggle out of this. Sonia, I wonder how much more damaging you think the revelations about Boris Johnson's refurbishment, very expensive refurbishment of his Downing Street flat would be, where the reports are that he attempted to set up, we know that he attempted to set up a a trust to pay for the upkeep of number 10, which would be chaired by a Tory donor, that, that a Tory donor did give cash to the Conservative Party. What's unclear still is whether the Conservative Party then lent Boris Johnson the money and then Boris Johnson has paid them back for it that number 10 is still not being clear about that and just saying that no conservative party funds are being used when we know they're not being used the question is whether they were used how how bad do you think that looks that he was so so disenchanted with the john lewis nightmare as apparently it was described inside of theresa may's um you know the thought that was so terribly you know lower middle class or whatever he might have thought about it that he he had to immediately spend tens of thousands of pounds on a refurbishment Well, I think it's damaging because it plays into perceptions about the Conservative Party as being kind of people who just don't really kind of get how ordinary people leave. It's something that they've really tried to shake off with some success. For example, during the Brexit campaign, they sort of, you know, implied that they were on the side of ordinary people who wanted Brexit. You know, I think there are two aspects to this story. So first of all, there's the idea that a £30,000 annual official allowance for refurbishment and upkeep of the Downing Street flat. I mean, 
£30,000. That's a huge sum of money. But somehow that wasn't enough for Boris Johnson and he felt he needed an extra 60k in there. I mean, who needs £90,000 to refurbish a flat that has been refurbished quite recently and done up quite recently? And I just think it's extraordinary, this idea, you know, Sarah Vine was on the radio this week, Michael Gove's wife, sort of saying, well, prime ministers, they, they can't be expected to live in a skip. I mean, good Lord, as if Downing Street, the flat at 11 Downing Street is a skip. And I think it just plays into this idea that the Conservatives have just got no idea how normal people live. Like the idea of living in a house filled with John Lewis furniture. I mean, it's a, a luxury. Most of us live with Ikea flat pack. And that's if we're lucky. And then I think there's a second aspect to the story, which is really about sleaze and the source of this money. And where did it come from? And was it originally in Tended to be a donation? And if so, who from? And why wasn't it declared? Did the Prime Minister break the law? I think that's sort of slightly trickier to land in some ways because it's more technical, but I think it's also important. And I think the thing about this is it's quite hard to measure this in terms of instantaneous poll impacts. And I, I do think that the way that public perceptions of politicians work is kind of more complicated than do they affect the polls in the following week. And, you know, we know the Tories have got a poll lead at the moment, although there's one poll that's, you know, suggests that lead has shrunk a bit as a result of all this stuff. But in some ways, you know, people psychologically want to feel good at the moment because of vaccines being rolled out. That is really kind of determining the national mood about our politics rather than, say, what happened last year. But that doesn't mean that this stuff is irrelevant and that it's just going to go away. I think there will come a tipping point where actually maybe the economy isn't feeling that great post-pandemic. The effects of Brexit are being felt, even if they aren't necessarily associated with Brexit in people's minds. And then I think this stuff really will start to matter. So I do think it matters that Labour lands this as a narrative right now, even if it doesn't affect poll ratings instantaneously. And I, you know, I think to say, well, the Tories are still in the lead, this stuff isn't having an effect. I think that's just too simplistic a view of the way that the public see our politicians. It's it's really funny because you know, um, you know when you first wake up and you you're you haven't got your work brain on and you just respond to the news like a human being. And I noticed those stories in the Daily Mail today about Carrie and Boris. And there was that detail that he said to aides, she's buying gold wallpaper. I just can't afford it. And he was really panicking because he was going to go bankrupt. And the the kind of human me that doesn't care about conservatives (laughs) thought, why couldn't he just have that conversation? What relationship is that that he can't say to her, don't buy gold wallpaper, we can't afford it? And I think... There's elements of this that really will ram home on top of what Jess said that, you know, they don't live like normal people. They sneer at John Lewis. They more and more sound like kind of strange people who don't have real relationships, whose marriages aren't real, whose affairs aren't real, whose conversations aren't real. They sound like, you know, characters in poorly written sitcoms. Johnson is looking more and more idiosyncratically corrupt rather than part of a corrupt apple wagon. I want to talk a little bit about about Carrie and also the advisors that that Johnson has. We saw Simon Case, the cabinet secretary, um, a man brought in to be the top civil servant previously having worked at the palace. So he should have some experience of toxic environments. But he's, he seemed to kind of be pleading the fifth when he was asked about anything to do with the flat refurbishment, anything to do with, with the lobbying inquiries that we know are going on. And 
he came across as someone who who wasn't necessarily and going to be the the man to tell the prime minister no and there are very few experienced aides close aides left we know that his longtime the director of comms, Lee Kane, also departed along with Cummings. His chief of staff, Eddie Lister, he's been linked to a few of these kind of conflict of interest stories. He's gone as well. There aren't very many people now who are sort of long-term aides of Boris, who are a long-time experience in the Conservative Party, apart perhaps from, from Carrie Simmons, who was director of comms of the Conservative Party. And I guess, again, I, I don't know why I'm positioning myself always in the, the generous field but you know <laughs> maybe it's because because you're on with me and Zoe Jess. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just posing the quest I'm just posing the question I think it's just because you're nice um <laughs> you know she does have some experience and therefore she, is it just sexism to write her off as someone who only cares about gold wallpaper that she does care about the strategy of the government she has got some ideas about how it should go she hasn't liked the kind of blokish way that it was run and so why why shouldn't she have some influence I do think there is sexism about this, actually. I mean, I think all the stories about, you know, there were people expressing outrage that she might have influenced the prime minister. I mean, they're completely nuts. He's running the country. Of course, he's going to go to his partner for advice. I think that's entirely to be expected. I think the bigger sort of point to make in all this, though, is that she's part of one faction and there are other very clear factions delineated in Downing Street. It seems completely dysfunctional. It's all these sides politicking against each other during a global pandemic. There's no clear strategy. There are people who feel incredibly differently within Downing Street as well as in the cabinet. And Boris Johnson seems to have got caught up in this sort of personal soap opera and all these arguments between people like his fiance and his top advisor, a lot of which actually seems to be personal rather than substantive. And I think that is the key issue rather than is it right or wrong that Carrie Simmons has sort of influence over the prime minister? Of course she does. And we're never going to be able to change that. But we should be concerned about the fact that, you know, that is part of a very factionalised, divided number 10, far more so. I mean, no one's saying that, you know, under Labour prime ministers that number 10 and number 11 were a sea of unity. But it does seem to be much worse at the moment than it ever was. And the levels of dysfunction just seem to be, you know, absolutely crazy during what is, after all, a national emergency that's claimed over 120,000 people's lives. It's very difficult to take her seriously as either a professional person or a lady. Macbeth character when she seems when the only thing we know about her is how much she likes wallpaper (laughs) I mean it's just serious it's just difficult to then transmute that onto a picture of a person who has any sort of ideology or intellect or ambition even she just seems I think it's it the whole picture is quite a trivial one and I don't think that is sexist I think anybody who cared this much about their sofa I would take the same view of. But I, I, uh, is it just her? That that would be my question. Well, I don't think Boris Johnson cares about his sofa and whether or not it camouflages with the wallpaper. I mean, you know, he's a he's a feckless person. I don't think he really, I don't think he really cares about interiors. So it must be coming from somewhere. It's not coming from Harry Newman, Henry Newman. Sorry. <laughs> And I think we'll probably we'll, we'll wrap it up there. But thank you <laughs> <laughs> on that lovely note about 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 camouflage sofas. We'll we'll leave it there. Zoe Williams and Sonia Soda, thanks ever so much for joining me. Thank you. Thank you. For more on the Conservatives' latest image issue, 
Make sure to listen to tomorrow's episode of our sister podcast, Today in Focus, when Rachel Humphreys will be joined by Raphael Baer. And look out for that wherever you get your podcasts. After the break, we asked how political leaders in Europe are responding to local pressures to welcome tourists this summer. We'll be right back. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome back to Politics Weekly. I'm Jessica Elgott. Now, as things stand, Brits eager for a sunny holiday abroad will have to wait until the 17th of May when restrictions on international travel get lifted. Meanwhile, on the continent, southern European countries who heavily rely on tourism for their economies are trialling ways to welcome tourists back. But is Europe ready? And now that the UK is no longer part of the EU, will it be seen as a priority? Our political correspondent Peter Walker spoke to John Henley, the Guardian Europe correspondent, and Helena Smith, the Guardian's Greece, Cyprus and Turkey correspondent. Helena, first of all, I mean... You're in Greece. Greece is obviously a very, very heavily tourist-dependent place. How are things in general with COVID? And do you think the Greeks are kind of ready, almost desperate, to get the tourists back? Well, Greece certainly has had a better pandemic than most other countries in Europe. Cases of coronavirus and COVID-19 deaths are significantly lower than other parts of the continent, although Greece, like so many other countries, has also struggled to suppress a third wave of the pandemic in recent months. Um, Infection rates have been stubbornly high. But epidemiologists are now saying, as of this week, that transmissibility rates, so to speak, are coming down. They're seeing the first signs of the country turning a corner, which is a good thing, given that the government is so eagerly bracing for tourism and has set this milestone date of May 14th for the opening of the country to tourists. And of course, I shouldn't forget to say that on the vaccination front, over 2.8 million vaccines have been administered to date. Almost a quarter of the entire adult population have received at least one jab. And there is some talk that frontline workers in the tourism industry, people who work in restaurants, hotels, will be given a priority place in that vaccination Mm. drive in the coming weeks. And the Greek government is reasonably open to the idea of overseas visitors coming in if they can prove they've had a uh, vaccination. Is that uh, is that correct? That's absolutely right. Anybody who is in possession of a vaccination certificate or has a negative COVID or antigen test is 
welcome into the country. And the government is making a very big thing of that, given that Greece is so heavily reliant on tourism, much like Cyprus and indeed Turkey. And both Cyprus and Turkey this week have gone back into lockdown precisely because the two countries are depending so heavily on tourism returning and bookings are already coming in. So they want to be ready, certainly by the end of May, for tourists to start arriving. Okay, brilliant. So John, I mean, for some of the EU's bigger countries, I mean, you're in Paris, where there's still kind of a lockdown going on. I mean, France and Germany have seen rises in COVID cases, and there's even been anti-lockdown protests and things like that. I mean, it, it potentially might be a more tricky situation for them to welcome tourists. I mean, or are these discussions taking place now? Yeah, I mean, it, it is a big, uh, it's a big issue. And France, obviously, also not not as reliant, you know, percentage wise in its economy as countries like Greece or, or Spain or, or Portugal. And France is particularly keen to welcome back, for example, American tourists, high spending American tourists. That's less of a priority for the southern European countries, simply because they don't receive quite so many. But there is an ongoing debate about this within the EU. And part of the problem is, of course, that countries control their own frontiers and the EU can try and coordinate, you know, the approach across the whole block. But at the end of the day, countries are going to follow their own best interests. So, you know, France has begun trialing, for example, a, a kind of a COVID pass, although nobody in the EU likes to call it a pass or a passport, um, <laughs> mainly, mainly because of fears that, that you know, that it, that it basically would be discriminatory to people who haven't, uh, you know, ha- who haven't been offered a jab yet. The European scheme, which the Commission hopes to get launched by the 20 on the 21st of June, is supposed to be kind of like a common framework, really, that will integrate all these different national certification schemes. Okay, to go back to Cyprus and Greece, Helena, is this kind of worry maybe amongst some of the kind of more tourism-reliant southern EU states that you might get this kind of stitch up of the kind of big countries who decide on this, you know, unified way that COVID kind of passport should should work. Is Greece confident it can, you know, plot its own course if, if necessary? Well, Greece has, as we said earlier, championed the idea of a vaccination passport. And as John said, it's initially faced when it first proposed this idea back in January, a lot of scepticism from fellow EU member states, fearing that it would be discriminatory in some way or other. The government, the centre-right government has in no way suggested that a vaccine certificate will be needed in any part of the country. And this also applies to Cyprus, to for example, to enter a restaurant or or a taverna or or a bar, um, that I think would offend the libertarian sensibilities. (laughs) They know that that would be a line they just, no, no government would be able to explain or indeed enforce. I think that, I think the Greek police force would, would run away with (laughs) the idea of having to enforce such a thing. So that's never been suggested. Greece, yes, has has been very aggressive in plotting a way out of this crisis through tourism. You know, one in five Greeks works in the industry, in the tourist industry, which accounts for more than 20% 
of national income. So it's a huge demographic. And the sector is obviously being hammered. I mean, it lost 75% of its turnover last year. And the government this year is very much hoping to recoup, say, 50% of pre COVID earnings in 2019. So yes, it has focused very much on pushing the idea of a vaccine passport. And then it has also pursued a host of bilateral travel arrangements with other countries from the US to Israel. Indeed, in February, under a deal reached with Israel, anybody in possession of a COVID-19 vaccination certificate could travel unimpeded to Greece, i.e. they would not, upon arrival, have to go into self-imposed quarantine. But it should be said, perhaps this is indicative of the caution that we will be seeing, only 700 Israelis took up the offer of quarantine-free travel using a vaccination certificate over Easter when the government opened up the country in a first to tourists from Israel. So there is still a lot of caution out there. I shouldn't forget to add that Greece has also made a very big thing of fully vaccinating populations on remote islands or islands and islands with smaller populations of less than, say, 15,000. And it's done that also in the hope of luring tourists to Mm, so-called COVID-free islands in the Aegean. And then amidst all of this, you have Britain, which is obviously no longer an uh, EU member, has got a kind of good vaccination rate at the moment. I mean, currently, we should hear at some point next month both what the government's plans are for vaccination passports in terms of travel. They're likely to take place. But also the government's going to announce this kind of traffic light system of red, amber and green countries that British people can go to, which is in terms of what kind of quarantine, if any, you need to take part in once you come back to the UK. John, I mean, how much of a role is Britain playing in all this? I mean, Britain sends a lot of tourists into Europe every year and also receives a reasonable number of tourists. Is it made any more difficult by the fact that Britain is kind of deciding its own fate totally now? Or is just the high vaccination rate in the UK almost making these considerations slightly easier? I mean, it is a complicated situation. I mean, I think we've, we saw that this week when Ursula von der Leyen, the, the commission president, told the New York Times in an interview that the EU was kind of in advanced talks with the US for welcoming American tourists, but kind of pointedly said that, you know, no such talks were underway at the moment with Britain. And I think there is a bit of of a Brexit fallout from this. Mutual trust really isn't that high. Certainly, of course, the British vaccination programme, you know, it has been successful. It's also the case that that the European rollout is finally seriously beginning to pick up speed. I mean, really quite quite substantially now. And the uh, the European Commission has repeatedly said that there will be enough vaccines and they seem to be on track for that at the moment for 70% of the 
EU's adult population to be fully vaccinated, so with both doses, by kind of mid-July. But uh, I think at the end of the day, essentially what seems to be happening is that the UK is running into the sort of the same kind of supply difficulties in the second quarter of the year that the EU had in the first quarter of the year. And it seems likely that come the summer, you know, there's going to be not much of a gap between the two. But no, of course, British tourists, particularly in countries like France and Spain, uh, Portugal, Greece are, are desperate. I mean, I have to say, I think if the British government is planning on allowing foreign travel from, I think it's May the 17th, if we don't have details yet of what, you know, that the, the travel certificate might look like and how it's being organised, then I think there's a, a degree of scepticism about how that, <laughs> you know, how it might actually work in practice. But there's no doubt about about the desire of the tourism sector on the continent to be able to welcome British tourists again at all. Well, yes, I mean, the UK government is currently only saying that they will provide details in early May, but early May is a slightly movable feast. So we're still <laughs> waiting to be to be told. So one final question to both of you, I'm going to kind of put you on the spot. Do you both think that the kind of countries you live in will get a lot of tourists? And are you yourself going to be planning any foreign trips? I mean, I'm not personally booking anything. I'm going to wait and see what goes on. And my, I'm resigned to the fact that my holiday plans this year might be you know, whatever's left in the UK, which frankly won't be much. Helena, first, I mean, what do you think? What's your prediction? Well, yes, I think Greece will certainly have a better tourist season than it did last year. I mean, for starters, it's opening up earlier than it did last year. And I don't think I said, but restaurants and cafes will be opening al fresco as of next week. So there is a general sense of this landmark May 14th day nearing and almost a, a sense of excitement around that in, in the Placa district beneath the Acropolis. Restaurants are getting ready for the moment. But officials themselves are saying that it would be very surprising if they surpass 50% of earnings and arrivals of 2019 prior to COVID-19. In terms of my own um, <laughs> <laughs> travel plan, I, I would like to get to an island this year. I didn't get to an island last year, but much of that will depend on bookings. I am hearing that some of the more popular islands are already booked up as of June. So oh, wow. uh, people should start looking into where they want to get sooner rather than later. But, you know, a lot of people will this year, as they did last year, despite the prospect of many of the smaller islands, as I mentioned, being so-called COVID-free, i.e. fully vaccinated in terms of their local populations, will once again be heading into mainland Greece because of the fear that, you know, that a lot of those journeys induce, you know, being on a boat, on a ferry for eight to 10 hours that might be very mm. full. A lot of people may not fancy that at this stage of the pandemic. And, and John, you live in one of the, is it actually the most touristed city in the world, uh, Paris? Uh, yeah, it's one of the most touristed cities and it's certainly the most touristed country in the world, France. So, so, so are you expecting the uh, influx? I think, I think the short answer is that an awful lot will depend on what happens in the next month or so. Looking at the infection curves in France, in Germany, in the Netherlands, in Belgium, I mean, the, I think the numbers really need to start coming down fairly significantly, fairly 
sharply for France to have a tourist season that, that resembles anything like what they what they were, as Helena said, back in, in 2019. But that said, I think there's a real determination, certainly on the part of governments and on the part of the Commission in Brussels, to make sure that at least within the Schengen, the, the passport-free Schengen area, there's pretty much free movement. And uh, we can have, as what, what Thierry Breton, who's the, the commissioner in, in charge of sort of vaccine procurement for the EU has called on several occasions now an almost normal tourist (laughs) season. Fingers crossed indeed. Helena Smith in Athens, John Henley in Paris, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Peter Walker speaking to Helena Smith and John Henley there. That's all from us this week. Make sure to listen to Friday's episode of Politics Weekly Extra as Jonathan Friedland and Robert Reich dissect what has been a fast-paced first 100 days in office for President Biden. But for now, I want to thank our guests, Sonia Soda, Zoe Williams, Peter Walker, John Henley and Helena Smith. The producer is Yolene Goffin. I'm Jessica Elgott. Please look after yourselves and thanks for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. At Airbus, we're at the forefront of new technology. We're redefining the aerospace industry by using disruptive technologies and new energies to reduce our environmental impact. Okay, thank you very much. We're bringing the world together, collaborating, and acting on climate change. At Airbus, We're pioneering sustainable aerospace for a safe and united world. Learn more at Airbus.com.